All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Biopic, a movie dramatizing the life of a particular person, typically a public or historical figure. So we're talking about biopics in the beginning of this episode because the ninth best picture winner, the great Zigfield, is the technically the first biopic, although there's arguments as to why it might not be a biopic, but we will delve into that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, so to kind of start off this conversation uh, between me and John, John, what makes a great biopic? And how honest do you have to be while making it? I think what a great biopic kind of can be defined by is really truly showing the, we hear this all the time in biopics, but it's the essence of the the creator, the historical figure, whatever it is that you're kind of depicting in the film. It's specifically kind of representing that essence of either the moment in time that kind of represents them as a, as a person, as a character on that film, but also you know, truly representing the essence of that person entirety, you know, with their impact on history or their impact on the people around them. Now, how honest do you have to be is is a much, much trickier question because so much of, of film is kind of dramatized and whether it's based on a, a book or a, partic- or a particular um, person like biopics are, you, you know, you have to kind of move things around, adjust things, especially if you're trying to make a biopic that kind of goes over someone's entire life. So how honest do you have to be? I think it really depends on that particular aspect of the biopic. Is it a moment in time that defines someone? Or is it a particular kind of overview of their entire life? And I think when you get into bigger terms like that, I think the honesty kind of shrivels down and it's more about just kind of hitting those marks for that particular character. As an audience, as a viewer, would you are you okay with that you can take in a biopic and know that there's probably some inherent bias behind it because of the money that's being put into it, um, the people behind it, who it's actually about, what historical event. Are you okay while watching that? Do you wish that at times when you are watching a certain movie about a certain certain figure that there is some sort of accuracy with it? Yeah, I think it really depends. I Again, like it, if it makes the story more entertaining, I think things can be moved around and adjusted in order to make it just an entertaining film, there's aspects of people's lives that I think on paper sounds interesting and sounds entertaining, but then when you actually get to the film and, and you're filming a scene, it's it's not very interesting. It's not very interesting to depict something that may be something very monumental for that character or like a certain point in history. So I, I think there's necessary times where you do have to adjust and kind of play with that kind of level of honesty. But I think it really depends on that type of film and that particular character. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And I, to me, I, I, I think back to our conversation that we had in the third episode about All Quiet on the Western Front and exactly and, and adaptations because we talked about is it as a as someone going to you know to a movie theater or streaming it because nowadays you're streaming things. Is there is it weird for people to to enjoy these you know horror movies, war films? Is it is it thrilling? Is there is that too much you know is it a little sick of us that we enjoy these type of films and and then i think when we get into biopics the honesty that you do need sometimes behind it it can be crucial because you can sometimes come out of a movie feeling a certain way about someone because of how they were portrayed and then you 
redo your own research about either that event, that person, whatever, and you realize that the story was was flipped in a different way. And it, for me, sometimes that takes away and it makes me feel a little bit bad about myself because sometimes there can be a really great movie and then you learn that the person is just really kind of a piece of shit and you you feel bad that you enjoyed something. And which again, like goes back to what we were talking about in the third episode. Is it too weird for us to be enjoying these things in films that seem so dark and, and and kind of off brand, but at the same time, it's probably the most entertaining things that we do get. Yeah. I think there's definitely times where, you know, there's probably scenes in a lot of biopics that are completely made up. And those scenes may be like a perfect, perfect representation of that character or that person that was uh, either alive or still living. And sometimes that's necessary. Like there may be a scene inside of a recording studio. If this is about like an artist and there were never really cameras maybe at the time and you don't really know what happened between this artist and another artist or this person and a producer or whatever it may be you know there's not always documented truth and history behind a lot of these famous people's lives especially the further you go back and especially with the great zigfield which is you know about a person who's alive 100 years ago essentially so yeah it's it becomes necessary in a lot of cases to 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 kind of fabricate things and move things around so when we so we're delving deep into this topic because of uh, honesty and and how biopics and wh- why it matters like who's behind these movies these biopics because the great Zigfield had some counseling from Florence Zigfield's second wife Billy the actress Billy Burke um, which we're going to get into but just to kind of briefly touch upon it is that she was behind the creation of the film and the writing process and we don't know what kind of input she gave so when we watch this movie now we don't know what's honest and what's real, what's not real, how much is blown up, how much is not being told. So it does become important why we wanted to talk about it. But to kind of further expand upon biopics, it, does, Great Zigfield isn't the first uh, biopic to necessarily win Best Picture or biopic or something or biographical film. So you have The Great Zigfield in 1936. You have movies like The Life of Emile Zola. Then you got Lawrence of Arabia. Then The Sound of Music, A Man for All Seasons, Pat and Gandhi, Amadeus, Out of Africa, The Last Emperor, Schindler's List, Braveheart, A Beautiful Mind, The King's Speech, and 12 Years a Slave, which are not all biopics. Some of them are, but then some of them are biographical-based. And so I just want to include some of those in that list. All which are Best Picture winners. All which are Best Picture winners. So it's it's 15 total films. So out of the, at the moment, 92 films that have won Best Picture, 15 or biographical or a biopic especially when talking about biopics you always see these films as like a vehicle for especially best actor um, best uh, supporting actor sometimes as well and, and best actress so we've seen films especially recently like mank and you mentioned a beautiful uh, a beautiful mind and a beautiful day in the neighborhood judy steve jobs milk the aviator uh, malcolm x you can go on and on about how many different uh, best actor or best actress winners um, came from biopics they become like the centerfold for an actor to just dive deep into someone's life and to truly transform themselves into a new character yeah i feel like every time i hear like when someone's gonna p- portray someone else on screen it's like oh that's so exciting because they get to show their true acting talents and like delve deep into that character but there is someone that john and i truly love their films and i'm sure many of you listening love uh his films and that's quentin tarantino um we dug up an interview from uh an internet magazine that he did with the talks 
that's the name of the internet magazine. This was back in October 2013. And they asked him, are there any genres that he doesn't like? And he said, I don't like everything. I like historical movies, but I'm not a fan of the costume drama. Another genre I have no respect for is the biopic. They are just big excuses for actors to win Oscars. It's a corrupted cinema. John, first off, what's your initial reaction to hearing that? And then how does that then relate to what we were just discussing about how there's so many movies coming out nowadays that predominantly feature an actor or actress in a biopic role? I personally kind of hate biopics. There's like a few that kind of get into muddy territory where you could argue that it's not a biopic. And we've definitely had that conversation before. And there are biopics that I particularly love that we'll talk about both films that we uh, enjoy a lot or biopics that we enjoy a lot. But I do think there's there's some interesting aspects of biopics. I think the reason why people love biopics and they love pushing those best actors or best actresses in biopics is because most of the time we have some kind of understanding of the person that they're portraying. So it's like seeing someone truly transform. If you have a fiction film and you know you love a certain actor and you have to buy into the world, you have to buy into their performance there's nothing from you outside of the film. But when you get into a biopic, you're like, oh, I kind of know who JFK is. So like when I see this actor playing JFK and it's really convincing to me, that's an amazing performance. When if a, an actor is just portraying a character who they never existed before you sat down in that theater, then it's it's a not as big of a leap to say, wow, that's a huge transformation they did. That's really convincing. Yeah, one that comes to mind uh, is Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, portrayal of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and he won an Oscar for it. Uh, and everyone was so, uh, it was, they were amazed by it. Cause I, I can remember people being like, wow, it's like, I actually saw Abraham Lincoln in person and on screen, but it's like, but you didn't know him and you would have never, there's no audio recordings or video recordings of it. It's just written history. And so there's this, it, it seems a little off. It seems off that we jump into these you know historical figures and we start to praise it because people are just portraying them and there's so much for people to use and that's great for them to use in their performance. But then I go back to what Tarantino said in the last sentence, he says it's it's a corrupted cinema. And for me, that means that people are just taking other people's works and their lives. And it's so easy for them to adapt it to their role that it's corrupted, that it's not that um, I want to use like this magic moment on film that when you can make it, when you make it all up on your own and that's what a lot of Tarantino's films are they're kind of coming from his head although we just had a conversation about once upon a time in hollywood because it does have historical moments inglorious bastards has historical aspects to it but they're not like biographical movies and they're not biopics even though they have those historical elements so i don't think like that's a corrupted cinema um and in fact i think they actually praise cinema in many ways but then yeah but going back to biopics it does seem a little corrupted and and there is that dishonesty that's there um, because I, we're both pretty smart guys. I think it's pretty obvious that sometimes when we're watching a biopic. We're like, well, some of that has to be made up, that some of that isn't necessarily the truth. And Tarantino expanded on that uh, question when the interviewer asked why, and he said even the most interesting person, if you're telling their life from beginning to end, it's going to be a boring fucking movie. <laughs> if you do this, you have to do a comic book version of their whole life. For instance... When you make a movie about Elvis Presley, you don't make a movie about his whole life. You make a movie about one day. Make a movie about the whole day before he walked into Sun Records and the movie ends when he walks out of that door. 
that's a movie. So I think there's there's more to it for him. You know, that's definitely like the politics are involved. But it sounds like Tarantino specifically just hates this because it's usually portraying someone's whole life. And we've talked about like portraying time in film and how hard it is. And we've seen that from like the first couple winners and how you kind of lose track of time. And that's especially hard for biopic because usually you're you're starting a film off about like this young boy or young girl. And then we're kind of progressing all the way to there's some superstar most of the time. So there's definitely aspects of that. It's, it's a boring movie because you have to fit and cram so much in that it becomes like bullet points instead of an actual arc throughout the film. Yeah, and I think that kind of now ties up the end of this conversation because coming out of watching The Great Sigfield, I certainly felt that I wish they had just done a moment in his life and not necessarily what is, I think it's like his late 20s or mid 20s where we start until his death. And it, it at times it, it just dragged and you didn't care about some of the points of his life. But if it was about one moment in his life, I think the film would have been better. So what are some particular biopics that you enjoyed recently? Some recent ones that I've enjoyed. Uh, so I, I love Jackie. Well, I just love Natalie Portman. So yeah, I know you love Natalie I, Portman. I love Natalie Portman, <laughs> but she's, she's great in that movie. She is. That's also on my list. Um, some other ones are I, Tanya, Bohemian Rhapsody, American Sniper, Moneyball. And then I think your personal favorite, John, is the Motley Crue movie, The Dirt. That movie's garbage. But even that, <laughs> but the, okay, the movie's not great. But I love Molly Crew. But that movie is yeah. based off of a book that that they wrote, and yeah. so there is. Some, and you read the book, and you know a lot about it, right? right? Yeah. But not everything that happens in the movie is true. That has to be Hollywoodized, dramatized. Yeah, yeah, dramatized, Hollywoodized in a certain way. Even though the guys that it's about are the ones sort of behind it, it's not necessarily as accurate. So it's weird. It's really weird when you enter that conversation about honesty and film and how true it is. And you can, we can talk about hours about this subject. I think me and John could have a whole argument about it, but that's not what we're here to talk about. What we are here to talk about is to answer this one question. Is the great Zigfield worthy of the best picture award of 1936? So welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And before we start this episode, I kind of wanted to go into our little time machine and go back a year. So around this time last year, in 2020, I was coming back from a trip. And the within then the next couple of weeks was when the coronavirus pandemic started. But before the world shut down and we were all forced to stay inside in quarantine, I had started the journey of watching all these best picture winners before my i left for my trip i had compiled a spreadsheet made us like everything that i wanted to map out with these movies it was really simple and if you look at the spreadsheet now it's pretty complex <laughs> but it was pretty much simple just like my rating and then have i seen it and for me i looked at this list of 92 movies and i checked off the ones that i had seen i was like okay i've only seen about a third of these so there was 60 plus movies that i had to go out and see it and I felt a little ashamed about it because I was like wow I haven't seen many of these movies but I started I started watching them and then I think it was March 12th is when basically the world really did shut down and the the day before March 12th or March 11th is when I watched the great Zigfield for the first time so now that we're a year later <laughs> we're here into the pandemic I can't believe I mean I'm even saying that um, but I finished the list 
I talked with John throughout even watching these movies and we started talking about this podcast and then creating it. And then we did that. And then in January of 2021 is when we released it. And this is the first time that we are recording since we've been putting out episodes and it's been really cool to see the response to it. Um, I greatly appreciate everyone who's listened so far and liked us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatnot. Um, and so going, so doing this a year later, having already watched the great soup field and then watching it again, uh, it's kind of cool, even though there's a lot of shit that's happened in between. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think it worked out really well because it's, there's definitely other people that are doing a podcast similar to this and it's mainly people going back and watching movies for the first time. And I think what makes this different and unique is the fact that you've seen every movie. So it's like this weird aspect of me going in and, and seeing most of these movies for the first time, but then you having that second viewing that second rewatch. And a lot of times there's movies and especially movies that are older and they may be harder to digest compared to like modern films that need like a second watch and need a, a second chance to go back and kind of learn more and see more. Um, even if it's like a year later, like we are now with the great Zigfield. So I think that's really what's helped and, and made this kind of stand out. And it's been great kind of going on the journey. And we, we really do appreciate anyone who's like listened and, and got with us this far. And I think we're only going to go up from here. Yeah, uh, we, de- we definitely will. Um, John, I, I appreciate you because even though, yeah, I did watch all these movies and you are coming out for fresh, with a fresh perspective. I actually appreciate your perspective because you have opened my eyes on some aspects of the movies that I either liked or didn't like as much, but you helped to change that. And I think that's also important when you're seeing movies is to talk about it and to discuss because there's so much to delve into. And you're right, these movies are old and it's not easy to uh, to embrace them and be like, oh, that was a great movie. It, it's really difficult Um and before we give like our initial reaction of the great Zigfield, I'm not going to say this is the greatest movie I've ever seen, but the second time watching it, I actually enjoyed it a little bit more. But having said that, let's get right into the great Zigfield, shall we? This lively biopic depicts the rise of Florence Zigfield Jr., a theater producer who became renowned during the 1920s for his lavish stage productions. The son of a highly respected music professor, Florence Flo Zigfield Jr., yearns to make his mark in show business. He begins by promoting Eugene Sandow, the world's strongest man, at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair by overcoming the competition of rival Billings and his popular belly dancers by allowing women to feel Sandow's muscles. Siegfeld returns to his father and young Mary Lou at the Chicago Music College and departs to San Francisco where he and Sandow are deemed frauds for putting on a show in which Sandow faces a lion who falls asleep as soon as they let it out of the cage. Flo travels to England on an ocean liner where he runs into Billings again, who is laughing at a newspaper article denouncing him as a fraud. Flo discovers that Billings is on his way to sign a contract with the beautiful French star, Anna Held. Despite losing all his money gambling at Monte Carlo, Flo charms Anna into signing with him instead, pretending that he doesn't know Billings. Anna twice almost sends him away for his rudeness and for being broke, before revealing that she appreciates his honesty. Zigfield promises to give her more publicity than she ever dreams of, and to feature her alongside America's most prominent theatrical performers. At first, Anna's performance at the Herald Square Theater is not a success. However, Flo manages to generate publicity by sending 20 gallons of milk to Anna every day for a fictitious milk bath beauty treatment, then refuses to pay the bill. The newspaper's stories soon bring the curious to pack his theaters, and Zigfield introduces eight new performers to back her. Audience members comment on how the milk must make her skin beautiful, and the show is a major success. 
Flo sends Anna flowers and jewelry and a note saying, You are magnificent, my wife. And she agrees to marry him, flaunting her new diamonds to her fellow performers. However, one success is not enough for the showman. He has an idea for an entirely new kind of show featuring a bevy of blondes brunettes, one that will glorify the American girl. The new show, The Zigfield Follies, an opulent production filled with beautiful women and highly extravagant costumes and sets, is a smash hit and is followed by more versions of the Follies. Sigfield tries to make a star out of Audrey Dane, and he lures Fanny Bryce from vaudeville, showering both with lavish gifts. He gives Stagehand Ray Bulger his break as well. Mary Lou, now a young woman, visits Zigfield, who doesn't recognize her initially and hires her as a dancer. The new production upsets Anna, who realizes that Flo's world does not revolve around just her, and she becomes envious of the attention he pays to Audrey. She divorces him after walking in on Flo and a drunk Audrey at the wrong moment. Audrey walks out on Flo in the show after an angry confrontation. Broke, Flo borrows money from Billings for a third time for the new show. Flo meets the redheaded Broadway star Billy Burke and soon marries her. When she hears the news, a heartbroken Anna telephones Flo and pretends to be glad for him. Flo and Billy eventually have a daughter named Patricia. Flo's new shows are a success, but after a while, the public's taste changes and people begin to wonder if the times have passed them by. After a string of negative reviews in the press, Flo overhears three men in a barbershop saying that he'll never produce another hit. Stung, he vows to have four hits on Broadway at the same time. He achieves his goal with the hits Showboat, Rio Rita, Whoopi, and The Three Musketeers, and invests over $1 million of his earnings in the stock market. However, the stock market crash of 1929 bankrupts him, forcing Billy to return to the stage. Shaken by the reversal of his fortunes, and the growing popularity of movies over live stage shows, he becomes seriously ill. Billings pays him a friendly visit, and the two men agree to become partners in a new, even grander production of the Zigfield Follies. But the reality is, is that both men are broke, and Zigfield realizes this. In the final scene in his apartment overlooking the Zigfield Theater, in a half delirium, he recalls scenes from several of his hits, exclaiming, I've got to get more steps, higher, higher, before dying in his chair. The Great Zigfield stars William Powell as Florence Zigfield Jr. Myrna Loy as Billy Burke. Louise Rayner as Anna Held. And Frank Morgan as Jack Billings. The Great Zigfield is directed by Robert Z. Leonard. Written by Williams Anthony McGuire. Produced by Hunt Stromberg. Cinematography by George J. Falsey, Carl Freund. Merritt B. Gerstad, Ray June, and Oliver T. Marsh. All these guys directed different musical segments of the film. Film editing by William S. Gray. Art direction by Cedric Gibbons. Costume design by Adrian. So that's the synopsis for The Great Zigfield. Although while watching it, it doesn't seem that complicated. For a three-hour movie, it doesn't seem like it's full of that many things. And part of the reason for that is the many, many, many uh, big musical numbers and sequences that that take up a chunk of the movie. Um, And I think if I did like a rough estimation of math of it, I think it's about like 45 to like 50 minutes of like just musical numbers in the film. Yeah, definitely. I think the big wedding scene that we'll definitely talk uh, a lot about is got to be a half hour long it's such a long scene and it just like it never ends but it's also amazing it. i rewatched that just the num- that like rotating part yeah, and yeah. that was just 10 minutes itself 
Yeah, it's it's insanely long. With and uh, there's not there are not too many musical numbers. Like it, they're kind of like separated in two separate chunks almost. Yeah, and so kind of like what they do with like these musical numbers is that they're not full fledged songs, but they're like little uh, bits of of different numbers that were in Zigfield's shows. So you get like a good taste of sort of of what it was like, but it's also budgeted by MGM and it's actually MGM's biggest budgeted film at the time of it being made. I think it was like a little over $2 million. Uh, so there's a lot of money being put behind this more than the actual Florence Zigfield would have had to make his shows. Um, but when we talk about opulence and grandiose sets and costumes and designs and golden age Hollywood, this is probably the crown jewel of the 1930s. Yeah, and it's funny because our only comparison from the Best Picture winners <laughs> to <laughs> this movie is the Broadway Melody, which right. couldn't be... It's so similar in terms of the way they try to like focus it all about Broadway. Not a biopic, but it's so drastically different in terms of how extravagant and, and well-made it is. It was like a test. The Broadway Melody was like a test to see if they could do it. And clearly they could do it. I mean, not they didn't do it well in that film, but they did it well in films later that year and in the years later on. But this one takes it to a new extreme uh it is three hours of i want i want to say big sets but it's because it's just behind the stage for the most part yeah most of the time it's not yeah most of the time it's yeah most of the time it's not but um it's these like elaborate sets these elaborate costumes and and designs for just three hours straight for the most part and i like musicals but this one is not really my type of musical it's just a showcase kind of film it's a it's a we said in the synopsis it's vaudeville shows so it's these like shows that are kind of like put together by like different performances and and pieces um and even going again going back to the broadway melody um they were trying to be in the zanfield follies which was a base based on the zigfield follies they're just trying to play a little bit there yeah, I don't know if I would call it a musical. It's more of a biopic than it is musical, right? Because the numbers aren't really separated enough. It's like more so they just kind of like show a big chunk of what would have been the Follies or what would have been some other show that uh, Zigfield had uh, at the time of his life. And you can even see from the very start of this film, from the opening credits with the the big uh, light bulb signs that are you would almost see like on Broadway advertising oh, the that. stars. Yeah, you know that this film is going to have style and it's going to have a personality from like the very opening frames. So why did you like that at the opening so much or the opening credits so much? Well, it was different than what we had seen before. And they, it it's made pretty well. I don't know if they – they had to have used miniatures for it because of how they did it because you – there's no cuts really. It's it just the camera moves from moves, like different yeah. building to different building. It's supposed to look like that. But it looks like miniatures that they were able to kind of slide across some kind of set. There, there are some things that actually stood out to me that I thought were really cool. So for the screenplay credit that is suggested by romances and incidents in the life of America's greatest showman, Florence Zigfield Jr. And then the produced by Hank Stromberg credit, the music gets really loud. It's like this big crescendo. And there's just a zoom in on his name. <laughs> so I don't know if that's because the movie's about a, a Broadway producer and they're trying to kind of create that vibe again that the producer is like this big person behind the film which they are they, they certainly are although i think now the director has taken more precedence than a producer different story different yeah big <laughs> big argument could be had with with that right statement, yeah but anyways but they make a they make a point to 
to do that. And I thought it's funny that they do that with Hank Stromberg, but I think actually the most important thing is the suggested by romances and incidents in the life of America's greatest showman, Florence Sigfield Jr. And I say that because when we, we talked about in the cold open, this movie was in part helped written and made by his second wife, Billy Burke, who's, who in herself is a famous actress. Uh, for those out there, she, you probably recognize her as Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. There's a lot of Wizard of Oz references that we'll touch upon, but I think that's the biggest one, is that we have Glinda the Good Witch being portrayed in this movie, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. I loved um, seeing like a nod to The Wizard of Oz, and that's not the only nod. We have Frank Morgan, who's Jack Billings in The Great Zigfield, who is Oz in yeah, he's the, the Great and Powerful Wizard, yeah, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. So, And it was immediate. Like As soon as I saw his face, I've seen The Wizard of Oz so many times, I'm like, wait what like why why do i know this guy like i immediately recognized his face and i knew like this guy is so familiar what is it and then yeah. it struck me like 10 minutes in i was like no way that's yeah. crazy that blew my mind and it makes so much sense because he has the same kind of some similar character tropes in this movie where he's kind of like swarmy but he's also kind of charming and he's like the guy you hate but you also kind of love him at the same time right. the same way that the wizard is in the wizard of oz right well i guess since we're already talking about it, i'll just mention the last two parts of it so ray bulger uh he he's in this movie ray bulger played the scarecrow in the wizard of oz and ray bulger actually got his start with the actual Florence Zigfield in one of in the Zigfield Follies. So he's so he's in this film portraying himself and then the other aspect is that this is an MGM film MGM made The Wizard of Oz. So it's so there's all these like kind of cool connections for a movie that will come out in a few years and have these like different moving parts to it. But we're not talking about The Wizard of Oz even though I would love to. We're talking about The Great Zigfield. So uh, John, is there any particular scene or place you want to start with the film? Because we have three hours of content to kind of break down. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a whole a huge conversation in itself is should this movie be three hours? I no. think we both agree, yes, <laughs> no. that this movie is definitely way too long. They probably could take out 30 minutes, even maybe even more. Um, but I think a great place to start is with uh, William Powell. We talked a lot about how Oscars are kind of vehicles for best actors and a leading performance that kind of dominates the film. So I'm curious to jump off. What did you think of like William Powell's performance as uh, Florence or Flo, as I'll probably call him a lot, because that's literally how every character references him uh, in the film. So what did you think of William Powell's performance? Yeah, um, I thought Powell or Flo. Well, I'll call him Powell for right now. <laughs> I thought it was good it's not it's not anything great it's not anything that i was like oh my god I'm floored by it but i thought he was a steady hand and it, and i think that that's important for 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 a leading actor for portraying someone especially it's not common to at this time that there were like that many biopics and portraying people especially someone because zigfield the real zigfield died in 32 so this is well it came out in 36 so you gotta imagine 35 they were kind of filming it so it's three four years later that this guy is portraying this recently dead guy um but he there's some interesting quotes uh that powell uh said um so this comes from the complete films of william powell it's written by lawrence j kirk uh and he powell said uh what i tried to do primarily was to get across the essential spirit of the man his love for show business his exquisite taste his admiration for the beauty of women he was financially impre he was financially impractical but aesthetically impeccable, a genius in his chosen field. And that actually does sum up what the movie was trying to portray, that, that Zigfield is this, he's, he, knows what he, he knows what he wants his shows to look like, he's going to get it to look that way, and he's going to do it any way that he can. 
Yeah, he has. Yeah. He's in a modern term, he's thirsty in every kind of way. <laughs> he's he has like a thirst for power, success, and money, and he also is like has this thirst for women. Whether it's like showing off their beauty, like conquering their beauty, and in, in, in a way of either marrying them, having sex with them, whatever it may be. And we'll talk about those dynamics of how they kind of portray him with women and, and sexuality. But yeah, he Paolo is a really kind of dominant force in this film, and he really stands out in that kind of like very charming way that uh you would see in other films like it happened one night that we've seen from that kind of like charming lead performance but um where i think he struggles in the main performance is his aspects with women the romance aspects where he's trying to not you know get a actress or dancer to be on stage because those are his charming aspects of being that great producer and i think that aspect works really well but where it struggles is the romance that he has with his first wife or billy burke and it's just like very clunky and it could be some aspects of the writing or the direction, but it feels more just on William Powell's performance that there's not really like a direct connection or spark. And I, I think some of that also is just how much time they are willing to spend on these romances. And it, they, the film doesn't really want to dive deep into that. And that could be Billy Burke's kind of influence on just trying to kind of pull that aspects back out of the film. But that's the only kind of negatives that I found in his performance. Yeah. So to kind of jump off of what you were just saying about Powell's romance and that being like his flaw in the role is because he is interacting with, for the most part, his first wife, Anna Held, portrayed by Louise Rayner. Uh, we'll get to her after Powell's performance because her performance wasn't great. But anyways, when that's the bulk of the film that he's working with, it it doesn't, the chemistry isn't there because it's not necessarily a marriage that he wanted, that Flo wanted to have out of love. It was more out of business and getting her on the stage and stealing her away from Billings. And then you have his relationship with Billy Burke, which is only like the last like 40-ish minutes of the film. And it it works like him and Myrna Loy actually star in 14 films together. So there's clearly a, a chemistry between them. But in this movie, it's it's there in the initial scenes and then one of them together. But it's not there's not enough to make it fully fleshed out. So you kind of like lose some of his what you would Im- imagine like could have been the romance and some of those like things that you thought were flaws that could have been better if he had more of Myrna Loy to work with and instead of Louise Rayner. Well, well, first I'll say that I actually enjoyed Rayner's performance a lot. I think she's <laughs> really, yeah, I think she's like a f- really funny aspect of this film. And if, if to me, it felt very intentional that she was supposed to be kind of grating and uh, obnoxious in certain ways, but I loved her, her, um, you know, her singing performances where she's kind of learning the songs and trying to get rid of her French accent to be uh, appealing to the American audience on Broadway. And I thought that was really funny. You know, her, some of her dramatic performances is really over the top. And I think that's definitely for the time that we've seen kind of in the past couple films. Um, all the films we've really watched, we have some like over dramatized performances. And that's especially for a lot of the female performances. And I think that's a lot of the direction at the time and a lot of the screenwriting. Um, but yeah, the film in general, I think why that aspects of it kind of hurt for me is the film doesn't really want to pull the curtain behind flows like personal life. Like the, the film wants to show his professional and the products that he's essentially made or the shows that he's made. And it wants to focus on that aspect, but it never really wants to peel the curtain or the layers behind the drama behind his personal life. It just kind of wants to show it artificially and move forward. Right. And if this movie was made today, you would probably have some aspect. You would have that personal life aspect. You probably would get a little bit more about him being a supposed womanizer. We don't, we don't know everything, but I'm going to be inclined to believe that he was a little bit of a womanizer. Um, and 
in 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 a modern film there there would be some like dark thing that kind of like drives him that like feeds into like and, yeah the third act yeah right there there would be something but in this it's it's pretty it's pretty fluffy and it, it's kind of just saying like oh Flo's a, a just a great person he's just mm-hmm. he's just a producer and he, this is just what he wants to do and again like we keep on talking about Billy Burke's influence but that's bec- it is important because we don't know we don't know how much was held back and we don't know how much was forced into this movie knowing that this movie was influenced by her. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it just goes into the whole, what makes a biopic on it? Like, how do you be honest with a biopic? And you, first of all, you just can't, I think, but um, it's really hard to, um, but yeah, so it, it's interesting that, that Powell was able to give a, a steady performance. I think is what we will agree on. That's nothing great. It's good. It's not bad. It's just steady in it. It keeps the movie level um, at certain times because, again, it's a three-hour movie that that can drag. It can really drag, especially if you're not into musicals, especially if you didn't like Louise Rainer's performance like me. Uh, some of those scenes can really drag and, and not feel fleshed out and as good as they could be. Yeah, and there's definitely some scenes that we can like point out specifically that I think we could cut down. and You might have never seen this movie and you heard our synopsis talking about milk and you're like, why are they talking about buying and bathing in milk? Like, how does that have to do anything with this movie? Well, there's this big, long milk scene, which I think is like a great example of it being way too long and needing to be cut. The film, uh, that particular scene is a 10-minute scene in this movie, which is three hours long. And it's essentially uh, portraying how... His first wife, who was a performer at the time, and they're not technically together at this point, he's essentially like telling the media that she's bathing in milk and that that's like her secret. That's why her performance is so great. And he's basically trying to like dramatize behind the scenes. It's building up the publicity of it. Yeah, exactly. That's what he promised her. He promised that she was going to. Exactly. And she just doesn't understand. But this simple aspect, which I think could have been told in like a three minute scene of just saying, hey, you got to stop telling these lies. And he's like, hey, these lies are what's making the show popular. It's what's making you famous. It's what's making us rich. It's a 10 minute scene of that, of her complaining. And then Flo comes up and he convinces her that like the milk is a good idea. And it's like all of this 10 minute scene is telling us like two different things and it's telling us how he was really good about publicity and playing with the media and and how he kind of became closer with his wife and it's like such a two simple things that could have been portrayed in such a shorter amount of time there's some other unnecessary scenes like there's a scene before he actually meets anna he steals billing's assistant and i'm like we don't need these five minutes of this like back and forth like i really don't care no and it it makes and that's the beginning hour of the film and you're looking at the time runtime you're like oh my god i got another two hours of this of this bullshit back and forth that like really just doesn't it just doesn't matter and and so that's what brings down the film but then when you get into other aspects of the film it's really good but going back still to the acting because people like this and and you like i didn't know that you liked the Louise Rainer's performance. So I actually want to go deeper into that because uh, she's an interesting person and an interesting figure in the early uh, Hollywood days and especially in the Academy. Uh, the first thing is that she did win Best Actress for this and she actually was the first uh, actress to win back-to-back Best Actress in Oscars, uh, which was kind of a big deal at the time. And actually a lot of people were kind of pissed that she won in the first place because uh, she was this I think she was like 21 years old. She was a foreign actress. Uh, I think that we know pretty well that a lot of people in America were not kind to foreigners in the 30s. Uh, so 
her as her character and her background it's it's just it's just weird it i don't know it would i guess it one of the things i guess i can say is that it was probably good for the time but for right now it the performance feels very over dramatic and way too emotional yeah it is over dramatic and i think what works is when it's over dramatic is like the milk scene is like when she's singing and she can't get certain words right and and that <laughs> over dramatic aspects of it makes it really funny when it's for comedy but when it's for drama and i read in particular the reason why she won best best actress a lot of people think is her essentially her like breakup phone call so flo and her break up at a certain point because she catches him cheating on her essentially which is a dimmed down version of someone cheating on you but um yeah. That's a whole different story, but it it gets to this moment where she calls Flo, and it's basically her trying to get back together with him, but he doesn't understand that, and she's not directly saying that, but she's implying that, like, you're my one true love, and I wish, like, we this worked out together, but it didn't, and it's, like, this really emotional phone call where she cries, and it's it's so over the top, and it's so unnecessarily long, unnecessarily long for what it's trying to portray, so... It's one of those scenes we've talked about it before where it's something so melodramatic and if they had a TV at the time that they could show at the Oscar ceremony, like this is the scene that they would show for her winning Best Actress. Oh, yeah, certainly. And actually, re- again, it was like another thing I rewatched today. Uh, I watched that just that scene and nothing else from her performance and I actually liked it um, because it didn't feel as melodramatic mm-hmm. and as emotional because I wasn't getting that from her other uh, scenes from the rest of the film, which was full, which again, she was, she would whine. She would, it's a lot of complaining. She, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of complaining. It's like, go away flow. I don't love you. No, wait, flow. Come back. I do love you. Yeah. No, go back away. No. It's like that new movie, Malcolm Marie. Oh <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I love you. No, I don't love you. And it's just like a fucking pick a side already. Um, but her, yeah. So like that final perf- scene that she's in is it's good. It's emotional and it's actually, it is well acted, but I'm not going to, praise someone's performance based on one scene which actually is a common thing in a lot of oscar winning performances where it's just like one moment everyone's like oh my god that was amazing um i don't think that she was truly i don't think it was like anything that spectacular um but that's just my opinion on it yeah don't have to listen to it at all (laughs) i think that's the biggest issue with this film there's definitely some racist elements that we will talk about and and discuss but my biggest issue for the film since those are such small aspects of it um, it's really just women and the way women are portrayed uh, simply because Flo is like not only is he a producer who wants to show beautiful women but he also essentially wants to dominate women in his life whether it's like um, sexually to marry them to like show them off to people and tell them that they're rich and famous there is maybe five scenes in this movie where women are essentially like bought over or convinced uh, with jewelry, with flowers, like there, I can't even count how many times women get flowers in this movie because yeah. it's just about him trying to like seduce women and not just sexually, but seduce them to be in a show, to come to America, to do all these different things for him. Well, there's no sexual tension in any of the interactions with it. Like, he, like pointing out first to the Audrey Dane scene, which uh, Anna walks in on him and on her and uh, Flo together. Yeah. Um, Flo's like, well, and if she had walked in like a minute before, she would have seen that Audrey was very drunk, which is the thing they kind of talk about. So the Audrey Dane was like, the, it's not Audrey Dane; it's someone else that they tried to they like rewrote her name for. They like mm. used like a uh, a different moniker. Yeah. But anyways, uh, so so Anna walks in on Flo and Audrey. Uh, Audrey like kisses him like forcefully, and if that wasn't like Flo's decision, I mean, yeah, he could have stopped it, but it wasn't his decision to kiss her. And then like the other scene that comes up to. Uh, mind is the Mary Lou scene, which Mary Lou as 
very young girl. She, <laughs> eight to ten years old in the first scene, right? Yeah, she had she had been a child, and so I'm hoping I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that she was just supposed to be eighteen in this scene. When she though, comes back, yeah, later, when she comes yeah. back and like try, she like she kisses Flo. She's like all over him as if. Like she's like ready to be like, yeah, I'll fuck you to get this role, or like, yeah, like I'll marry you so I can be successful and famous too. Yeah, but yeah. he's but he pushes her aside, and and that's like an aspect of the film. Again, going back to Billy Burke, like, was that intentional? Do we not see some of these womanizing aspects? Definitely, yeah, one thousand percent. Yeah, it's definitely one thousand percent. And again, like we we don't know how much of a womanizer Flo was, but it's been reported that that Ziegfeld was a womanizer. And I think that the cheating scene is a perfect example because it's. It's the most casual and innocent way to show someone cheating on someone. There's always an excuse. Oh, she's a drunk. Like, she put pressured me. She pushed me. But, like, it's clear that that is just, like, them showing just a tiny, tiny bit that he cheated on his wives. He, he has slept with a lot of different women on yeah. Broadway. But it's, like, the most gentle, graceful way to say that. Yeah. He's not, like, doing anything harmful. Like, they're oh, it was an accident. Like, they make it as simple and easy as possible. Yeah, and it just goes, then Flo just goes right back to what he was doing before, which is just making Broadway making shows. Show. Yeah, making shows, and, like, that's just who he is. He's just a producer. And that's something that they keep on hammering and hammering throughout the film. Uh, but to kind of stay on to the how women are portrayed in this movie, they are um, they are objects in this movie from it, the very opening. From yeah. the opening, um, you know, Billings <laughs> says about uh, Ziegfeld's reputation as a womanizer. He says at the beginning, he goes, he makes ten thousand tomorrow, and he spends it all on the tomorrow night's girl. Like yeah. like like Ziegfeld. There's already, so many tiny little things like that. Yeah, throughout like the movie. as soon as he gets the money, he's already spending it on women. He's already buying them clothes, jewelry, flowers. Uh, he does that constantly throughout the movie, like as soon, and that's another thing in the movie. It's very cyclical, cyclical. I can't even say that word. He'll start a Broadway show. It'll be successful. The show will end. He'll lose money. He'll get more money and make another successful show. So and it's just like the cyclical thing over and over and over again that he just does. And it's cool the first time, the first few times it's interesting, but then you're just like, this is the whole movie and I'm, I'm sort of tired of it. And And that's where... Going back to what Tarantino said, where it's like, if it's just one, if it's a comic book thing, if it's one moment in their lives, it would have been really cool if this movie was just about maybe the the show that he was doing with Audrey Dane, and then the end of it is when Anna walks in. That could have been a perfectly good climax to just a single show thing about you. You still could have fit in many of these aspects that they put throughout the movie, but it would have just been about one thing, and I think it would have been a much more concise, detailed story. Yeah, it definitely would, and... To like end uh, or kind of recap on the way the women are objectified in a way, they're just kind of really are looked at as objects, objects to lust over, objects to put in front of a crowd, objects to uh, to give things to essentially and that's essentially the only thing that makes women happy in this movie is success or which success in this movie is currency, it's, it's flowers, it's jewelry, it's a mink coat, it's whatever is worth a lot of money is what makes a woman happy in this film. And that's simply it. There's, and again, that's what the issues with the film for me, besides the women is the way the film just doesn't want to reveal his personal life. Like it doesn't want to dive deep into why he loves his wife, why his wife loves him. Like it just doesn't care about it enough to spend any time. I got a question for you. Does Billy Burke character played by murder. Loy seem any kind of, does she seem like a materialistic person or no? No, no, she's the she's, only she's woman the only in this one. entire film that 
again, we don't understand why she loves him because literally when they first introduce each other, they're like, she's very anti Zigfield. She's heard of him. She knows who he is. And he's like just chasing after her, trying to convince her that he's the right guy. And then a scene later, she's like, I'm in love with you. We're going to get married. Like literally a scene later, she leaves him the scene before saying, I don't want anything to do with you. No, forget about it. They dance, whatever it's over next scene. She's like, I'm in love. We're getting married. It's it. It's end. Like that's literally all they give to Billy Burke's character in this film. Yeah. Attentional or not. I don't know. I want to end this conversation about women is from the beginning of the film. It's the, when Mary lose a child, Flo goes, I'm the funniest kind of fellow. I love all the girls. And Mary Lou says, how can you do that? Do they let you? And we'll leave it there. Oh, God. (laughs) We'll leave it there. So moving on to probably the the coolest part of the whole movie. And uh, the most memorable scene. Very memorable is the... A pretty girl is like a melody performance. Um, And people know it as the wedding cake scene. So a brief kind of big overview of why it's called a wedding cake is essentially it was this rotating piece on the stage that had different levels to it that looked like a wedding cake. And at the top uh, sat Audrey Dane's character at the end of the performance. It's a really, really, really cool scene, really cool setup. Um, So it looks so it's made up of of a few actually different songs. So it has a Pretty Girls Like a Melody, which was a Irving Berlin tune. Uh, it's from the Ziegfeld Follies of 1919. Um, it also has, uh, I'm going to totally botch these two um, opera names because they're, uh, I think it's, they're both Italian and I'm so sorry. One is Un Bel di Vedramo from <laughs> Madame Butterfly. Uh, and then the other one is Vesti La Gluba, which is from Pagliacci, the... Um, the story about the clown. That's really all I know about it. And But it has those musical numbers in it. And we kind of talked about how uh, these musical numbers in the film are like parts of like different other songs. So it's not fully fledged out. Anyways, so it's a, like a 10 minute sequence of this rotating cake. And it looks like it's mostly done in one shot. There's actually, there's just one. There's a few cuts at the beginning when it's just the one singer in the front of the stage. And then as they start to reveal the cake, it's one shot. And then they do... Uh, a pan up and it's, then it's a quick cut and then they do the whole rotation which is like like a five minute rotation and it's really cool yeah it's stunning uh, it's it costed supposedly two hundred thousand dollars which is roughly four million dollars today so it was a hugely important and expensive moment in the film and i think it holds up to this day i think it's a scene that i could show someone and they would be like w- like what like they would not understand that this movie is like 90 years old they from that scene alone you're like there's got to be some sort of like practical or special effects that's happening because it's a literally imagine like a four-tier wedding cake that's slowly spinning and what we would see in a broadway melody a good example is a static camera just watching a stage but for this not only is the the whole cake stage turning and spinning as it's revealing different characters and these lavish crazy costumes but the camera is also constantly Constantly like dollying or uh, has a crane that's kind of like pushing in and out as the the cake kind of spins and it's almost disorienting in a way where you can still watch it but it's like it's daunting how like massive this entire scene is and how it keeps going and going and it's definitely too long to be in the middle of this movie <laughs> yeah. but it's it's amazing it's beautiful it's like by far the most standout moment of the it, film it's too long in the middle of the movie because it's then surrounded by like another 40 minutes of other musical numbers yeah. which aren't as big and as opulent as this yeah um it and i think like what makes it really cool 
and fun to watch is because you don't realize you're going up these stairs because you're watching. Um, it first starts, I call it like a bat. It looks like the women were putting like bat like costumes mm-hmm. and they were dancing and, it, and it's really cool. There's, there, I think there's like 180 extras and performers used for this. Um, and so you're, you're, you're so mesmerized by the dancing and they're going up and down the stairs as it's moving and you like, you like, you don't even know like what you're looking at. And then all of a sudden you're at the top and then they pull out and show the whole thing. You're like, that's what took up the whole freaking stage. That's so cool. <laughs> like it, it's, it's, it's well thought out and it, it makes me appreciate, um, it makes me appreciate the art of filmmaking because you can see the time and effort that was put into it. You can see that they probably had to do this in many different takes. I think it took a few days to film like just this sequence, but it, it was so well done. It, it really shows like what you can do with film and, and with musicals at that time. And I, I truly appreciated it. And I, and I thought it was great. And, and like, and so that's what makes me love parts of this film. It makes me love 60% of this film and the other 40% of yeah. the story. And, the acting, I'm like, I don't need that. I'll, yeah, I'll take the musical numbers. It's awesome. It's great, but it also makes you question, like, what does this do for the movie? Like, it's visually amazing. It's beautiful to look at. What does it tell you about flow? It shows how extravagant and beautiful and grand his production was and his vision was for the shows. But does that need to be as long as it is? Does it Should it be that long? Like, should we see multiple acts? Should we have a side character that used to be a stagehand becoming a, a tap dancer? We don't need all of these things to show his life and depict the biopic, you know? Yeah, we, we don't need it. It's cool. And, and again, like, it's the it's like the peak of, of Hollywood, at least for the 30s, it's like this peak of, of Hollywood musicals and, and filmmaking. And it also brings up the question of, like, when you're actually going to watch this movie, in 1936 you're like like this is three hours long and there's kind of a lot going on like is this too much and for one thing like a business side of it you know for movie theaters they can't show the movie like that many times because it's in a day because it's only three hours so you're already limiting how many movies can like show this or how many times it can be seen um and also even variety when they released their initial review of the movie back in 36 that was like one of their criticisms was that the movie is too long. It just takes too much time. It actually had an intermission in halfway through the film. It it just didn't flow, and it made for not a great movie-watching experience at that time. I'm sure now it, it would probably be better, like, on a big screen. I actually would be interested to see it on a bigger screen, but um, but the opulence and, and the grandiose sets and musical numbers are cool, but it's not really what the story is about. It's, a, it's part of his life, but it's not about him and... When you're talking about a biopic, you kind of expect Ziegfeld to be even more prominent and even more drama behind his life shown. Yeah, it's definitely not what the movie's kind of centered around and about, but it still focuses such a huge chunk on it. The film is obviously about him. It's a biopic. It's about Flo and his life and depicting the women in his life, the shows and all the work he did professionally. And that's kind of depicted, and the reason why I think the film is so long is that the film thinks it needs to hit these points like it needs to show his rise and then his fall his rise and his fall his rise and that probably happens maybe four or five times when they could have reduced it down to like three and it could have been a better like three act structure of a film you know even the very beginning we get an introduction to like how he's using sando this awesome bodybuilder which like i freaking love that aspect of the film just because like how could you not love an old-timey like bodybuilder (laughs) for the time like it's really interesting, really interesting aspect, but it's 25 minutes that like could be cut down to like 15. 
Yeah, and even that's a little troubling. I actually want to ask you about that. Did he get that Sandow was not a fan of having to show off his muscles like that and allowing the women to touch him? Like, yeah, one thousand percent. That's yeah, totally I, drama yeah. about behind that. Yeah, yeah, because I, I got that too, and, and there's no mention of it of him. I mean, he sort of shows that he's like not a big fan of it, but he goes along with it. But mm-hmm. even then, after that, it doesn't seem like, at least what the actor was putting into it, that he did not enjoy that aspect of it. Which I, it brings up another thing that's just like, do these women, <laughs> you know, enjoy? Yeah, they don't. You know, these they aspects. don't show that as much though. Yeah. Like women saying, mm, I don't want to do that. It's like a little bit from his first wife, but it's really specifically just about that milk scene and not yeah. wanting to like be portrayed as a milk bather, essentially. <laughs> But yeah, Sando's a really interesting character because he's just there in the beginning. Like he's got such an interesting, you know, job and career because how often do you see a strong man like that in film, let alone 90 years ago? But uh, his character just kind of fades away and he just kind of gets lost um, in the film to focus on flow moving forward. But uh, yeah, again, that's really the film. It's his rise and his downfall. And it gets to to the third act where he's kind of down, um, lost you know money again and he's just trying to figure out what to do with his life and he's at the barber shop and uh, they're essentially making fun of Flo behind his back because they don't know who he is or what he looks like I guess apparently um, and he's basically uses this as like a vendetta to convince them that, like I'm not done I'm not retired I'm not broke like I can be successful I'll have four shows on Broadway but at this point it's like we've seen you <laughs> be successful like we've we know who we are who you are at this point we know like why you're so good at making shows we know you're a womanizer we like have all these aspects of your life we do not need this like we do not need you to see you like we can skip forward to when you're old like we can just move forward but the film thinks it needs to hit these bullet points and i think that's a huge aspect of why biopics are troublesome at times yeah well what i think is actually frustrating about that aspect of it of him having four broadway shows on at the same time is that that's like his biggest accomplishment the real Florence Ziegfeld if like again if that was the movie where it starts out that he's way more interesting if he's down on his luck he's he's newly married he's trying to find money I'm gonna you know he's hearing this like you know this whole thing in the barbershop and then then the movie is more about him making those four shows that would have been more compelling and then it would have still ended on him dying Um, it's just yeah again after like it at that point it's like two and a half hours and you're like oh my god how much more can i take of the scene same exact same thing yeah. same thing over and over again um it's a lot it's a lot to put on the viewer and it again like the camera it it definitely feels like they could have taken out like a half hour 40 minutes of this and it would have been the same film and i think it actually would have been just as, as successful probably still would have won best picture yeah like you know it was just a lot for a three-hour movie and and when I say a lot, meaning that, like, it's a lot of boring bullshit. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, trying to get the shows together, trying to raise money. But some of that kind of up and down roller coaster aspect of repeating the same plot points over and over, I think, builds my favorite uh, relationship in the entire movie, which is with Jack Billings, uh, Frank Morgan's character. Um, who he mentioned is uh, the wizard in Wizard of Oz. And his character is really interesting, not only because I think Frank Morgan's a fantastic actor. He, yeah. has, he has little to work with, but he's essentially the main competition for Florence. He's the main producer that's kind of competing against him, trying to outbid him, whether it's at the Chicago Fair uh, or if it's on Broadway, him trying to compete against his other Broadway shows. And the way that relationship develops, it's that constant back and forth, like, They eventually work together at some points, but it's mainly like them going against each other. Who has more money? Who's got the bigger, better show? 
And when we get closer to Florence's death at the very end, you know, he's back to being poor and, you know, he's really down on his luck. His wife has to go back to acting, which is this kind of big insult to him, essentially, because he's not being the, you know, the breadwinner for the family. And Jack Billings comes in and it's this really earnest moment where he's talking to Flo and he's basically saying, like, I have your back. Like, don't you worry. Like, the stock market crashed and you're broke because of this. Like, you know, it's not your fault. Like, we're, we're going to work through this and we're going to get together through this. And it's really sweet and endearing. And, and uh, Florence has a, a butler there and, and Jack Billings leaves and he's talking to his butler and he's just like, oh, that's so great, Florence. Like, you're, you're going to be, be able to be helped by Jack. Like, that's amazing that that's going to be like a savior for you. And he's like, oh, no, like he's so broke. Like, he's definitely yeah. broke. Like, he was just being a really nice, sincere guy. Like, he just made all of that up to make me feel better because he knows I'm so down in the dumps. And, like, that is literally the most touching thing in this yeah. entire movie. It's, like, the most dramatic, the, the biggest kind of, like, twist reveal. And it's this small little moment from a side character that, like, pulls on my heartstrings, like, literally the most out of this entire film. Yeah. I found that really interesting. I Yeah, I found that interesting, too. And I, I was, and it was a good... They ended it well. They ended it in the movie well. and um, But, yeah, that scene with Frank Morgan, it, it it's, like, bookends because it started with them and it ends with them. And it shows this whole progression of what they went through. And you actually, you feel a little sad at the end of it that, oh, like he's not going to make another show that he is, that we don't know his fate until a minute later, which is when he dies. Um, Speaking of when he dies and this movie does not escape some of the uh, horrors of racism because as he is dying uh, and he's saying, I need to get the steps higher and higher. Uh, there are women in Native American headdresses, and there's also a black face singer <laughs> featured twice throughout the film. Yeah, uh, like showing the full performance yeah, on, so, on stage at some point. Yeah, which was, I guess, a part of Zigfield's act, and I just, I don't, I don't get it. Why was blackface this, like, I gotta show it in a movie, I gotta show it on Broadway stages. Like, why do we have to do this every freaking movie? I think in one point it's to show accuracy of like what his perform like what his performance was. And I also think on on another hand, it's it probably wasn't look as looked at by these filmmakers at the time as being offensive. Obviously oh, it's yeah. clearly offensive and it's offensive now. It's so hard to even like understand now like why that's even enjoyable. Like is it simply to mock uh, people of the race because, you know, they're being like caricatures on stage and it's a white guy like dressed in blackface and like what's the actual entertainment value? It makes no sense to us at this point. Like it clearly just doesn't make any sense why this should even be in the film other than that. They want another musical number on stage. Yeah. And we're talking about like unnecessary things. Like it's not like it's even, it's like a few seconds really that they show of it. Yeah. We don't even know the character either. Yeah, It's like different, like spliced the parts. And so it's like, why do you include this? Um, So just kind of wanted to touch upon that because this movie definitely doesn't escape. No, it doesn't. Uh, Yeah. The women isn't the only issue. There's definitely other moments in the film. Definitely. uh, Definitely. Some, awful things but moving on to the to this point and i i i think this kind of will wrap up like our whole conversation about the film. yeah i want to talk specifically about the ending scene which we yeah. already talked about with jack billings coming in but i think the reason why the ending scene is so powerful is that the film finally wants to hit the nail on the head in terms of what this movie's about who um you know who Florence is like what he's strived for this entire movie and obviously throughout the entire movie we've seen him like luster for success luster for women but it's like what is 
what is motivating you? Like, why do you want to do this production? Why do you want to do the show? And it's simply about being bigger and grander, having more money, having more women, having the biggest show, like just having more and more and more, like it's never enough. And, and to me, it hurts the film in a way because it's like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, I wish you just focus more of the film on those aspects because it makes him such a more interesting and dynamic character. Um, but it's really just the end. Like, he's slowly fading away and dying, and he's just saying higher. He wants the steps higher and higher, and that's definitely a reference to, uh, like, the Ziegfeld Follies, which is, like, this super high staircase at one point in the film where he keeps telling the, the builders that it needs to be bigger, it needs to be higher and yeah. higher. He says at the beginning of the film, too, with uh, Sandow's performance, he said, yeah, as he stands he, he said the, the stage top. was too yeah. low, and he wants the stage higher. Um, and Ziegfeld was just known for that aspect of his producing. He was He was a detailed-oriented person, and everything had to be perfect. Everything had to be in its place and, and proper and look great. Uh, there's actually a great scene where he's arguing with a costume uh, designer and costume maker being like, oh, this is trash. I don't want this. And he uses the psychology of it basically being like, oh, this is so trash. I would never put this on my stage. And then the guy's like, oh, no, no, no. I want you to have this. Like, take it, take it. It's for free. And Dick feels like, yeah, I know I wanted it yeah, for free. Like, manipulation. Yeah, yeah. He, and, he, and he knows how to do it perfectly, and it's like a funny thing. And again, like goes back to our, the whole idea of like if it was just about one show and like all the scenes were like that. Yeah, so be, entertaining. It'd be yeah. so entertaining and, and perfect and, and keep you engaged. I think that really shows like William Powell's um, like great aspects of his performance. Yeah, like yeah, that that was a great scene. But it, it, that's two scenes where he sort of does that. At, again out of a three hour movie it's, yeah, it's just like not, not enough yeah it's not enough time there's too much unnecessary or unmemorable moments that take up a chunk of the film and the ones that are memorable are don't have that much time you know in it uh one of the last things that he does say is uh to billings is that they want to make it the biggest follies of my whole life and isn't that what this movie is essentially like a yeah. representation of his life this big the biggest show that could possibly be made and Jumping. It showcases like all of his the things that he wanted, to, all of the performances that he had already. Which Definitely, is the follies yeah. Itself. Yeah, and I think that's why when we talked about the very beginning and the opening scenes, when we kind of dive deep, and it was like, why in the opening cards do we like dive in and the music kind of comes in louder and louder for Hunt Stromberg, who's the producer, and I think it's because he's the producer about the movie of a producer, like he's the producer that put biggest producer known in in music at the time or in broadway at the time and made this big like extravagant film so i think that's why it's kind of focusing on him because he is the producer zigfield was the producer of all these shows it's just kind of like this weird like little meta nod yeah and to get a little bit more meta um there was this other quote that i had that powell had said from the same uh book uh, the complete films of william william powell um and i thought it was interesting and uh, and a good place to kind of end our discussion on this. Um, so he said, after seeing this film, I can see that most of the characters I have played before were contrived. They had no quote unquote folks as the character of Ziegfeld had in this picture. Their father was a pen and their mother was a bottle of ink. Here was a character with flesh, blood, and sinews. I felt for the first time in my acting career, I had tried the full measure of a man regardless of my shortcomings in playing him. So he almost admits that he didn't get to fully flesh out this character, that he didn't fully get to give it um, Ziegfeld's due. I don't know why. Uh, again, we can speculate that it was Billy Burke's hand in it. It was MGM just wanting to make it this big, opulent movie that just everyone just goes sees because it's just like, oh my God, look at all these musical numbers. Yeah. But you have the main actor saying that, I wish I had 
gotten to do more of him because there was there, this is the first time he felt that he had a guy and a character to flesh out more to dive deep into which goes back to the beginning of this though about how the oscars loves these kinds of performances now because i guess all these actors and actresses can dive deep into these real people's lives and yeah. get something out of it yeah i think the, the last thing i want to say about this movie is that there is a definitely a sh- weird and kind of focused connection to citizen kane Obviously, it's Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane came out in 1941, so it's only five years after this. I think Orson Welles definitely has a great influence from this film, and that scene from uh, his death where he drops—it's uh, a flower, right? He drops a flower. No, he drops a snow globe. No, no, in the Great Zigfield. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. you're talking about Citizen Kane. Well, yeah, it's a direct well, connection. Yeah, 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 he dies, is. and he slowly lets go of a flower. It's like almost the exact same shot that's in Citizen Kane. It's just yeah. a different object. Rosebud know? flowers. I mean, mean, and it's about this big grandiose guy that he's trying to depict. I think Citizen Kane is a, is a better like constructed film. It's more interesting in the way it's constructed, but there's other aspects like the film, uh, the great Zigfield, it constantly shows and and gives us exposition through newspapers, like a spinning newspaper comes in frame and it's like, this is a headline. This gives us context of what's going on in the world. And that happens throughout Citizen Kane. It's very similar in that way. It also depicts like this, man's success and his fall and and it like, tries to dive deep into a person yeah it's two media moguls that yeah. are bigger than life and it also has two scenes of the characters wives trying to sing yeah no definitely. <laughs> it's really it, it, there's a lot of similarities yeah. and i don't see anyone ever talking about the great Sigfield, let alone connecting it to citizen king yeah i would be interested to know if orson wells had really liked the great Sigfield. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. It's definitely possible. And actually one final note that I wanted to put on this, this is just like a fun little thing. Uh, Pat Nixon, Richard Nixon's wife, our first lady, she was a extra as a Zigfield girl in this movie. <laughs> Don't know which one, but she was in this <laughs> she movie. She was in this movie. She was in this w- movie. Um, yeah. So that is the great Zigfield. The Ninth Academy Awards were held on March 4th, 1937 at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California, and they were hosted by George Jessel. The major addition here is the Best Supporting Actor and Actress category were added for the first time. We're also seeing the first ceremony that the Best Actor and Best Director were limited to a fixed five nominees per category. Previously, we were seeing much larger, eight, even ten different nominees. Now, Best Director and Best Actor are limited to only five nominees. Or even, like, only three nominees for some. Yeah, uh, even less than yeah. previously, yeah. So, it's a, it's, a, it's a change that is still in effect today. There's only five people that get nominated for any of the acting categories and for Best Director. 
actually for any category, but uh, it was started in, in 1936. So that's your fun fact for today. <laughs> the Academy Honorary Awards that year went to W. Howard Green and Harold Rawson for the color cinematography of the Selznick International production, The Garden of Allah. And there was another Academy Honorary Award given to the March of Time for its significance to motion pictures and for having revolutionized one of the most important branches of the industry, the newsreel, which really is an important aspect of, especially we were just talking about the great Sigfield and Citizen Kane, that newspapers and newsreels being these very important aspects of, of, of going to the movies because they were always shown in either in between movies or before um, it, newsreels were important, which we, we don't have today. We have TikTok and YouTube and Twitter <laughs> and Instagram to give us our news. It is a nice nod though from the Academy to kind of reference newsreels because it is a form of media. It is a form of art, I would say, to kind of depict news in a concise and accurate manner. Best Assistant Director goes to Jack Sullivan for The Charge of the Light Brigade. Michael Curtis directed the film and he would also go on to direct Casablanca, but he was actually not nominated for this film. What we have here is just Jack Sullivan, his assistant director, winning for The Charge of the Light Brigade. Is that a little weird that your assistant director gets a gets to win the award but you <laughs> you don't get even nominated well we've talked a little bit especially when we, they first added the assistant director but it's like how do you how do you judge this category you, it's so weird is it like judging based on how these producers or the executives at these companies saw these assistant directors and like they put in the nod like i guess it's, it's very confusing how you would like determine who is the best assistant director because that job title doesn't always directly translate to what you see on film it's not like best art direction which you can see on film or best cinematography which you obviously see on yeah. film it's like as, it's a, as a viewer you, like how do you judge that it's yeah hard. And, and people see assistant director and think that they're heavily involved in the creative process but they're kind of more just like a management position just keeping the yeah. set running i mean they're super important but it's not again it's not something that you yeah. see directly reference in the art it's like oh well they had a really concise and accurate schedule they stayed on budget and maybe that's just exactly how they define who's best like who's that consistent but again it's for a specific picture so it's like (laughs) it's so 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 many variables like i don't know how you would define this yeah it's not a long living category but interesting that it was there though moving on we have best dance direction which went to seymour felix for the great Sigfield. Uh, so this is the second year of this award's existence. It's not a very long-lived award, Best Dance Direction. And it's the only Best Picture winner to be nominated in the category and win in the category. Um, so, John, was it deserving of this award? Well, the movie focuses so much on <laughs> dancing. It Again, we said it focuses like 40 minutes of the film on just showing a Broadway stage. And while it does it in a cinematic way from what we've seen, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a great dancing. I can't argue that, like, anything was bad about it so yeah i think it's definitely worthy yeah it's a it's definitely like i enjoyed it it was really good and uh, it's uh it's a very weird category best dance direction because there's not many films today um and i don't know how successful films would be today with like predominant dancing and musical numbers some there's like one a year that's always like good um but when it's like every movie like it was back then is doing it it just doesn't seem um it just feels like a little weird that to have that award looking at it now, but it was necessary for them. Best film editing goes to Ralph Dawson for Anthony Adverse. Now this is Dawson's second of three Oscars. Uh, We've previously covered that he has three Oscars, which is the most ever for film film editing. 
Um, it's also interesting to look at Anthony Adverse as a film because it is the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes at 20% out of any Best Picture, and that's just Best Picture nomination. So interesting. I don't know if I'll ever go back and watch this, though. <laughs> yeah. I, the the note about, though, about the Rotten Tomatoes score is that it's only a 10-review sample size. Which is probably the case for a lot of these earlier films, yeah. though. So it's kind of hard to... To judge it comparatively to now where it's like 400 reviews. Yeah. There's a particular movie of mine that I truly love that has a very high amount of ratings and it brings down its Rotten Tomatoes score, I think, if you you look at the numbers. Um, But we'll get there in about 80 years. Moving on. (laughs) uh, Best Cinematography went to Tony Gaudio for Anthony Adverse. Uh, Anthony Adverse, so it won four Oscars total that night. Uh, We've already won two already. Uh, so Gaudio, he's cited as an early filmmaker to use montage sequences. Uh, and he's also a founder of the American Society of Cinematographers. Uh, you'll see it as ASC on many cinema photographers credits when you'll watch movies. Um, and it's the only one of his career. Um, but should Siegfeld have been nominated in this category? It wasn't nominated. There were only two other movies that were. Um, I kind of think it did deserve. I think I think it's so definitely yeah. I think it maybe why it wasn't though is specifically how the film as we mentioned the cinematography was kind of broken down in segments so it's like almost five or six different cinematographers so how do you give it to just one maybe yeah. is the issue why they didn't nominate it yeah you, it, would you want a, a cinematography category that was just for like one scene no, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm just throwing that out there, just like thinking. No, it's me. definitely interesting, but I think that kind of breaks down the film too much. Where you could say that for everything, like yeah, uh, there's already a best score, and I think that's as like granular as you can get in in the Academy Awards. You know, you can break it down in each category, but if you then begin to break the film down, it just becomes way too messy and complicated. Best art direction goes to Richard Day for Dodsworth. This is his second Oscar. And he would go on to win seven times. His first Oscar was for The Dark Angel in 1935. And he would go on to win for How Green Was My Valley and On the Waterfront. And also for A Streetcar Named Desire. So we also see a nomination for The Great Ziegfeld with Cedric Gibbons. It was a name that we've seen um, many times. And he's also won twice already in the art direction category. Do you think uh, the, great, the Great Ziegfeld deserves a nomination or deserves even the win over Dodsworth? It definitely deserves the nomination. Um, and now I would have to look at, I guess, just still images of Dodsworth just to see yeah. like what the set design and what it all looked like. Um, I, what makes, you know, Ziegfeld really go is like, again, it, it's set pieces, the, the whole wedding cake thing. I mean, I thought for that would have surely gotten it yeah. a win because that yeah. was crazy. It's so um, extravagant. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it's a politics thing because he, he has already won twice before and he's going to win nine more times. He wins a total of 11. So even though Richard Day wins seven times, it's not even the most all time. So uh, are they giving Gibbons a break? Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Best sound recording goes to Douglas Shear for San Francisco. Uh, so another guy that has won a bunch. So Shear, this is his third Oscar and he won in 1935 for the Naughty Marietta. Um, and he also actually worked on the great Ziegfeld. Um, so it's kind of interesting that he, that that movie wasn't the sound recording. It wasn't even nominated for sound recording. And it's in the, the guy, Douglas Shear wasn't even nominated for that movie. It was for a different movie. Um, so kind of just interesting. I don't think there's really much to take away from that. I think again, the wedding cake scene in particular, the, the, the thought of this being of the time 
how limited sound recording probably was, how bigger, how much bigger it was and more clunky and everything. Like how the hell did they record everyone in that scene? Like it looked natural. Like it didn't look like they were dubbing over audio throughout that entire scene. Maybe they were, and we didn't notice it because the sets constantly rotating, but very impressive that they got all the recording, all the singing, all the dancing noises and everything in the great Ziegfeld. I think it definitely deserves to, to be on this list. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. Um, and we don't have like a separation yet of sound category uh, for the Oscars. Um, so there's not like for like sound editing, which is for like stuff like folly work and, and, and adding sounds after the fact and post. Um, but yeah, he definitely did a great job uh, with the film and uh, he won another Oscar. So good for Douglas Shear. Best song goes to The Way You Look Tonight from Swing Time. Music by Jerome Kern, lyrics by Dorothy Fields. So this is considered one, if not the best, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers films slash uh, singing numbers. The song was a top hit record in 1936, and Fields remarked that the first time that Jerry played the melody for me, I went out and started to cry. The release absolutely killed me. I couldn't stop. It was so beautiful. So have you ever heard The Way You Look Tonight? I think you have. It's such an iconic song. What do you think about the way you look tonight? I think it's a great. I think it's a great number. Um, yeah, Fred Astaire and, and Ginger Rogers—they're just iconic people. And and that quote from Dorothy Fields, uh, the first, not the first time she's hearing it, actually brought like a little tear to my eyes because that's actually really nice to hear that someone felt like that emotional and and felt like that way about a certain song. So it definitely shows it definitely deserved. And the fact that it was a top hit record for that year, I think, automatically has to go to it. I mean, like. I'm trying to think of recent movies. The one that I can think of is Frozen for Let It Go. Frozen, and then I think of... Uh, uh, Shallow for A Star yeah, is Born. that's exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. I, I like felt... And also, Eight Mile. Yeah, that's a little older. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I will also note that we have Pennies from Heaven here, which uh, amazing. Love that song. And we also have I've Got You Under My Skin. So what a... What an absolute smash of a year <laughs> for music. Like those three songs alone are like just iconic classic songs and much older, in fact, than I thought. I thought most of those songs were 40s, 50s songs. Best scoring goes to the Warner Brothers Studio Music Department for Anthony Adverse. Uh, so another win for Anthony Adverse. Uh, there's no MGM movie nominated for this category. As you know, we love talking about MGM because I think they play a huge power play a role uh, in the Academy. And it's also the second to last year that a music department would bear the whole nomination. Um, So we're starting to move away from it's just a music department or audio department, you know, the whole studio system. And we're going to start finally talking about real people. Best short subject cartoon goes to Walt Disney Productions and United Artists for The Country Cousin. Another on, one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. I was going to I was going to lead you up for that one, but you already you were already on it. This so this is one based on one of Aesop's fables, uh, The Town Mouse and The Country Mouse, and it was directed by Wilfred Jackson who would go on to direct Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp. So Guy's got some hits under his belt. Let me just say yeah. that he's got some. He's got some real bangers. Um, yeah. <laughs> Popeye the Sailor Man, though, meets Sinbad the Sailor. He was in. He that was nominated uh, this year. Um, so, have you I, seen that? It's freaking Popeye. How have I not seen it? I uh, mean, like, I don't know if you've seen that specific short though. Have you? <laughs> no, no. I don't know who Sinbad the Sailor is though. I don't know either, but it's freaking Popeye, and you know what? I'm tired <laughs> of of the Mickey Mouse bullshit that he keeps on winning. What I find really interesting about Popeye, I did not know that he was owned by Paramount. I mean, maybe not anymore, but 
It's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Best live action short subject collar went to Give Me Liberty for Warner Brothers. Uh, it's an interesting naming of the award because the first time and it's the only time it's the first time it's called best live action short subject color and it's only this and it only survived for two years that naming of this category so it's a little uh, so it's a little interesting that, that that's there uh, but the director B Reeves Eason he directed the film and he notably was a second unit director for the charge in the charge of the light brigade and the burning of Atlanta in gone with the wind. So we're talking about assistant directors and uh, for the charge of the light brigade for Jack Sullivan, uh, this guy um, B Reeves Eason. He was a part of that and helped to make it best live action, short subject too real goes to MGM for the public pays. Now this was a short film that was produced by Jake Chertok who went on to produce the first 182 out of 221 episodes of the lone ranger. He also produced some of the short films for Our Gang, or what we now know as The Little Rascals, and which also featured Eugene Jackson from an earlier Best Picture winner, Cimarron. We love, now, we love Eugene Jackson. Yeah, we do show. love Eugene Jackson. Um, now, I want to mention, because you might be curious what... Uh, so it's labeled as the best live-action short subject, but also specifically labeled as a two-reel. So for people that don't uh, understand now that we're in the modern filmmaking, not many people use rolls of film. Uh, but essentially, this is to break down the length of the short film. So uh, a reel of film is around 1,000 feet, which is kind of reduced down to about 11 minutes of running time, and that's, you know, if there were no editing or any cuts. So this would essentially be two, so about a 20-plus minute short film, while the one reel short subjects will be closer to 11 minutes or shorter, or 10 minutes or shorter. Best live action short subject, one reel, went to Hal Roach and MGM for Board of Education. We finally have an R Gang short film that wins, and it's exciting to like first read that, but there's no Eugene Jackson in this, though. Uh, so sorry, Eugene. Um, this is the only R Gang short to be honored at the Oscars, um, but it's not necessarily the best one, according to some critics. Um, and Hal Roach, uh, he's the producer for it, and he's most famous for, for producing our gang but also producing a large chunk of the laurel and hardy films best adaptation goes to pierre collings and sheridan gibney for the story of louis pasteur collings and gibney were the first writers to win for a best adapted screenplay based on their own uh, work in their own fiction so to kind of jump off of that being based on their own work we get to best original story which went to Pierre Collins and Sheridan Gibney for the story of Louise Pasteur. Um, it's very confusing. It's a very confusing for a few reasons. One, because how can a movie win best adaptation and best original story? And is best original story really best original screenplay? Because best story is its own category that will be featured throughout the years um, with also best original screenplay and best adaptation. You also have the great Zigfield in this. It's and also that's not an original story, that is an adaptation of someone's life. So it's really it's really odd to see some see a film winning for best adaptation and original story. It happened. It has happened though a few times. There are four screenplays to to accomplish this in in a certain way. So in 1941, you had Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which won for adapted and story. You had the Best Picture winner of 1944, Going My Way, adapted in story. And finally, you have Miracle on 34th Street uh, from 1947. 
um, to win for best adapted and story. Is this fair? Like I kind of am annoyed by this. I'm really annoyed by this. It just doesn't really make any sense because we have this perceived notion of what these two categories are now, um, which is obviously uh, an original story that isn't from any kind of piece of fiction or any kind of true story. And then we have best adaptation, which is now defined as a adaptation of, um, you know, a nonfiction event or a nonfiction character, or it's based on some other, you know, novel or other piece of fiction. So I just don't think it, they kind of split these up in, in that same kind of way. The, the fact that the great Zigfield is nominated for best original story makes it feel like this category is anything that's never been told in film. Yeah. Like if it's a remake, then it can't be considered best original story. And that's kind of the only guideline in a way, maybe, you know, it could be based off a book as we see the winners for Collings and Gibney one. And I think it's just, this category was different back then. It just kind of shifted and became more focused as we move on. Yeah. And and just to be clear, like this is not best original screenplay. Like this best original story does not translate into best original screenplay over time. It is its own separate category. Only two Best Picture winners have actually won the award. Uh, Going My Way, which we mentioned from 1944, and The Greatest Show on Earth from 1952. If you've ever seen The Greatest Show on Earth, you would never say that that's a great screenplay or even story, but that's for episodes down the road. Um, so it's very weird, and it's there's a lot of nuances with, with this, but it's it really makes no sense. Best Supporting Actress goes to Gail Sundergaard. For Anthony Adverse. So this is the first Best Supporting Actress. This is also the first film performance by Sondergaard uh, after her career on stage. Um, she would go on to be featured also in the 10th Best Picture winner, The Life of Emile Zola. Yeah, so we're this is the first Best Supporting Actress award. So we finally have this uh, the Supporting Actor and Actress categories after Charles Lawton was robbed as um, Captain Blythe for the Mutiny on the Bounty, as you remember from the 8th episode of Worthy. Um, and I wanted to bring up uh, some some metrics, some Oscar metrics. And I got that from a book called Oscar Metrics by Ben Zausmer. Um, so he had in this chapter about the best supporting actress category, um, he talks about how people were billed uh, in certain movies and, and what it actually means to be a supporting actor or actress. So Sondergaard actually holds the record for the lowest billed winner of the category. Um, this is not a trend that would last uh, because as the award became bigger and bigger, um, the billings would be higher and higher and there'd be more of an emphasis on making that person uh, known uh, on the state uh, on, on the film, not stage film. Um, so it's, it's, it's cool that this, that she holds this record for not being necessarily the star of the film or really the main supporting person, but she won still though uh being listed last there uh in Zausmer's book oscar metrics he actually talks about that there are some best actress uh winners and nominees that were billed lower but it's because of how the film would structure it like um if gone with the wind uh they'll structure the credits based on where the people are from so you'll have a guy like clark cable he's not mentioned in for like several credits until uh they get to his character uh so but for, but Sondergaard holds that distinction as the lowest build winner uh, of the category. And one other thing uh, for this category is they were not given statues. They were actually given plaques. So I guess maybe people thought like just because you're supporting actor, supporting actress, you don't get the statue. You just get a plaque as yeah, like yeah. the 
prize of the award. Definitely lesser than. It kind of shows you how much they care about the leading actor, probably because, or the leading actress, probably because, you know, it's a push to sell a film at the time still, you know, very much dominated by these big actors and these big names that would really carry a film to the box office. Best Supporting Actor goes to Walter Brennan for Come and Get It as Swan Bostrom. Now, this is the first of three eventual Best Supporting Actor awards for Brennan, and this is the most uh, in that category and tied for the most by a male actor in any acting category. So to go back again to the Oscar Metrics book, um, you can tell that I just recently have been reading this and taking lots of notes of it. Um, so the, the thing that, that Zalzmer brings up in, in this book is that the Best Supporting Actor, if you track it and look at the chart of people who win it, it's more common to win it if you're an older actor. Um, out of the 13 oldest nominees of that category, the five of them that emerged winners um, were at least 77 years old. Um, and also these stats, just to give some context, they were gathered up until the 2018 ceremony. Um, so it just goes to show that like, if you're the old man in the movie and you're nominated for the category, you're probably going to win. I don't know you have to go through each one to maybe pinpoint like if that's uh, an ageist thing or a sexist thing or like what their characters were doing, but it's pretty noteworthy that this category is dominated by older men and predominantly white older men. Best actress went to Louise Rainer for the great Zigfield. We've gone into it more. We got into a little bit about Louise's uh, performance during the conversation. So I think we've kind of like hit the, nail on the head with that i don't love it john you liked it a little bit more because you felt that uh there's that because her emotional and comedic aspects drove the film but i actually think she was loved more for that final scene uh which is when she's talking to Flo on the phone um so that's probably why she won uh but louise rayner actually holds a really distinct uh record um she was the oldest living oscar winner at 104 years old uh, unfortunately, she passed away uh, in December of 2014, 13 days before her 105th birthday. So it's a record that's still held today. Um, I kind of I want to say th- like this that I hope that record does get broken because I hope people live for longer and longer. Uh, but it's a really it's a really cool honor to hold being the longest living um, Oscar winner up in you know up until she died, but she still holds that honor. Now, I don't think this is worthy of best actress it's so hard to say it's even kind of tricky to even say she should be labeled as best actress i mean in this whole film she is the main actress it probably has the most screen time most lines definitely but she still feels like they push her to the sideline and becomes like insignificant like i think she kind of like barely registers as an actress instead of a supporting actress yeah. mainly because it's about flow and because it's his story and his biopic yeah i think today she would have been a supporting actress i, I think so too, i think that's yeah. how her distinction would have been um but that gets played around a lot um yeah and final my final thought though on her is actually a quote from william powell uh, talking about it because she was very young at the time of, uh, of the film uh, being made and it coming out. So she, there was a lot of scrutiny behind her actually winning and also her being a foreign actress. Um, again, we, we've kind of touched upon that, but this is what Powell said. He said, she is one of the most natural persons I've ever known. Moreover, she's generous, patient, and possesses a magnificent sense of humor. 
She's an extremely sensitive organism and has a great comprehension of human nature. She has judgment and an abiding understanding, which makes it possible for her to portray human emotions poignantly and truly. Definitely a creative artist. She comprehends life and its significance. Everything she does has been subjected to painstaking analysis. She thinks over every shade of emotion to make it ring true. In Europe, she's a great stage star. She deserves to be a star. Unmistakably, she has all the qualities. And it's a it's a great quote. And I I do agree. I do agree that she has these like qualities in the performance. And like I said before, like I watched just like that one scene of her at the end where she's talking on the phone and like it, it really helps true. But after three hours of being hit on the head with it, it's just a little too much for me. And I think this also just comes from the screenwriting as well. Um, so it's not my favorite performance. It's not my favorite actress. I understand why she won. It would have been my choice. Yeah, I would have preferred to see someone like Gene Arthur from um, a Best uh, Nomination for the Best Picture that year, Mr. Deed Goes to Town. I think she has a really prominent role. She fits that category of Best Actress, and she's a uh, has a really compelling performance, and it's a really interesting character. Yeah, so Gene Arthur uh, wasn't uh, nominated, but there was also like big, uh, big stars that were nominated along with Rainer, which again go- feeds into this whole like, oh my god, like how does she win? So you had Irene Dunn in that category, you had Carol Lombardi and Norma Shear, uh, all of them nominated along with Rainer uh, in that category, and um, she took it and she won. Um, you know, it, it's good for her. So really well done. Best actor goes to Paul Muni. In the story of Louis Pasteur as Louis Pasteur. Uh, Mooney would go on to star in uh, other Best Picture winners. He's a five-time nominee and only won one time. We also have stars like Gary Cooper nominated for Mr. Deed Goes to Town as Longfellow Deeds. And then we see William Powell in My Man Godfrey as Godfrey. So it's interesting that he wasn't nominated for the great Zigfield at all. He was nominated for a completely different performance. Both of us have never seen My Man Godfrey. So I'm curious why he would be picked for that role over, you know, a film that's a biopic that's predominantly his piece to kind of perform in. Yeah, um, I don't know. that, And that happens so often throughout yeah. uh, the, the Academy Awards history where the actor or actress gets nominated for the wrong role that year. And um it's just a, it's a common theme and and just so happens that William Powell was uh, was a part of that but you actually watched the story of Louise Pastor you you wanted to, to see uh, what the fuss was about yeah we actually had a, a long break in between the last episode and this episode so it gave me a chance to dive deep and I watched Mr. Deeds goes to town and I watched the story of Louise Pasteur because I knew there was a deep connection to those films this year in the ninth Academy Award. And I wanted, really wanted to watch two other films or a film that uh, also was nominated for the Best Picture category. And I kind of wanted to get some sort of comparison because we really haven't done that at this point. And um, unfortunately, it didn't lead to much success because I, I really disliked the story of Louis Pasteur. I thought it was not only really poorly told in terms of the way the film was constructed. It, it is a biopic as well, which is really interesting that it's competing with uh, the great Siegfeld. But um not only did I not enjoy Paul Muni's performance, I thought it was pretty dull, pretty one note. Um, the film itself actually was really degraded and, and not well preserved. And I think we've talked about that previously where that may be a sign of people kind of forgetting and not really caring about preserving a film. And I think that kind of speaks a lot of volume um, for this particular film. And 
I don't really think it's worth the time. I think the reason why it was so popular and nominated for so many different categories is that Louise Pasteur uh, was a great, you know, science pioneer and chemist who discovered the anthrax vaccine and helped um, really reduce uh, the black plague from French cattle. And he was a huge and prominent um, scientific figure. And I think it would more played into how amazing and mysterious science may have been back in the day. And there are some cool aspects of the film that kind of show like a POV of uh, a microscope. And there's just really not much to talk about in, in the film, unfortunately, and it really doesn't hold up too much. So a biopic about a scientist wins the acting award, but not a biopic about a Broadway producer. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't get what it is. I find William Powell's performance so much more entertaining and engaging, and the characters more inter- entertaining uh, and engaging as well. And I feel like they just gave it to him for his for the actual person. Like they yeah. almost like gave him the award because they wanted to honor this scientist who really helped the world by you know, discovering the anthrax vaccine. So it's a, one of those weird wins. Yeah, very weird, but. Next episode, we will have plenty of time to talk about Paul Muni uh, <laughs> since he is in the 10th Best Picture winner, The Life of Emile Zola. Moving on, though, Best Director went to Frank Capra for Mr. D Goes to Town. I, this whole, going back, I this whole journey that I've been on, the biggest thing that I've taken away from it is how much I love Frank Capra. <laughs> I love Frank Capra. I loved it happened one night, and I actually loved Mr. Deeds Goes to Town a lot. Um what you that was another movie that you got to watch so what, what was your reaction uh to mr deeds goes to town i liked it it i, I think i actually liked the great zigfield more though i i found it kind of more compelling um in the main character obviously we have like all the negatives that we talked about that portray of women and how long the film is um i just don't know if mr deeds goes to town really hit in the way that i really wanted to Obviously, we have the Mr. Deeds remake with Adam Sandler, and that kind of like corrupts my mind because I constantly think about the references. And we have that the Capra uh, motif where he really wants to talk about the world. He wants to bring in side characters. The whole court scene that kind of ends the film is engaging because we learn so much about the kind of town and the city that they're in, and and how people perceive um, Mr. Deeds. So it is an interesting film. I think what it do for me is grow if I uh, saw it again I think I would get more out of it and I think I may have just been too distracted watching it knowing those connections to the the remake or adaption I guess you can call it yeah I it's a movie that um I would recommend going to watch I actually want to rewatch it again I I, I really liked it a Capra style to me uh there's something um and I hate using I, hate, I really hate using uh, this term for filmmaking but I'm going to use it right now it feels honest and it feels like it's actually it's endearing yeah he's, yeah it's truly he's human a wholesome filmmaker definitely yeah will say. there's a wholesome aspect to his filmmaking there's a there's quick it's very quick dialogue it, the acting is always on it's it's always high level the the sets are always like it feels very American and and which is interesting because he's an Italian uh, he's an Italian immigrant um, making these films, so um, there's just there's there's sort of magic in Capra's films that I really like. Um, so this, this is his second Best Director award, and we are going to be talk about him very soon again. Um, Robert Z. Leonard, he for the Great Zigfield, he was nominated for this category. Uh, his direction was really good. Again, like you're not going to get these great dance sequences and musical numbers without him. Was it better than Capra's direction? It's two totally different styles of filmmaking, um, so it's hard to compare one of one over the other. Um, but I, if you told me that Leonard won over Capra from this year, 
I don't think I would have been mad. Um, but Capra won, and and that's just how it is. The nominees for outstanding production are the story of Louis Pasteur, Three Smart Girls, The Tale of Two Cities, San Francisco, Romeo and Juliet, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Liebold Lady, Dodsworth, Anthony Adverse, and The Great Sigfield, which is obviously our winner of the ninth Academy Awards. Ben, I will note, uh, suspiciously, there's five <laughs> out of the ten Best Picture nominees are all... Uh, MGM Pictures. And the winner was an MGM film. Uh, yeah, we're getting back into the whole MGM discussion. Uh, there's a definite definite politics with them and, and winning. Uh, but to put that aside, you know, th- this this year looks really strong when you look at the IMDb numbers. Uh, Ziegfeld has 6.7, uh, and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, had I think, has the highest at a 7.9. Um, Libel Lady also has 7.9, excuse me. So the two of those movies kind of lead. So very, str- it's a very strong year uh, compared to others. But Ziegfeld won, and uh, I, I, I'm okay with it. I'm, I really am okay with it. Even though I love Mr. D's Goes to Town, um, I know you, you didn't like the story of Luis Pastor, so that definitely wouldn't have gotten it. But, yeah, I'm definitely okay with it. Um, what do you think? I think it's worthy of this this best picture, honestly. I think that it is such a bold film in terms of it trying to be a biopic really early on. You know, it wants to show all these Broadway productions. And from the previous Broadway melody, it, like, completely outshines it and completely outdoes it in every single way. It has great performances. It's entertaining almost throughout. While there are issues that we come by and really spot... Um, whether it's women, some of the racist elements, uh, it being too long and how much you can really cut out of the film. I do find the film really entertaining and interesting. I have really kept thinking about it after I finish and it's it's bold, I think, for the time. And I don't think people really talk about the great Siegfeld as much as they should. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree with all of that. Um, I think that I would say 60% of the film is really good and 40% isn't and if that 40 percent was cut out i think that 60 percent would be much higher and i think that if they had centered the film uh in a different way um it would have been better and so there's a lot there to be desired for but it's all there and it's definitely a a well it's a well-made film i wouldn't say it's a well-told film uh there's a difference so uh just to give some stats and numbers because that's what we love to talk about uh on this show uh, my rating for it, and I think this is actually the first time that this happens. I gave it a 68. John, what did you give The Great Zigfield? I gave it a 70, and it's the first time that I've given a film a higher <laughs> rating than you have. Yeah, that's and that is definitely okay, and I love to see it. Um, why did you give it a 70? I think some of the aspects I just spoke about, it, it, it really stuck with me more than I would have expected. I was like really dreading watching a three-hour film, and with the Broadway melody in the back of my mind and kind of expecting that, I think it kind of blew me out of the water in terms of the way it showed Broadway. And it was trying to juggle so many different things at once while it did have some faults to it. I found that it was bold and it really was trying to push, I think the genre of biopics and the just filmmaking in general beyond what it was, uh, you know, seen as at the time. I think it also, some of the aspects we haven't talked about is like the cinematography is really bold and constantly engaging. The production design is beautiful. The stage, the costumes, it's all really like beautiful to look at and engaging, you know? And I just think 
there are definitely aspects that could have made a better, more engaging story, more deep dive into his personal life. Um, but I think it was a very entertaining film, and I definitely think it's worth the watch. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on like all those points. I think for me, it just gets brought down by the the pace. It's a three hour film. There's so many unnecessary scenes. I mean, we've hit on the head on some of these aspects. I didn't love Louise Rainers, although I think I have this conversation. I may have liked it a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, so there's just a lot again like left to be desired about this film. Uh, so I gave it a 68. Um, actually, which is higher than what I originally gave it, which was a 60. Uh, so I did find some more love uh, the second time. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes percentage is a 66. The average uh, critics rating on Rotten Tomato is a 6.31 out of 10. The audience score is a 50% actually. And the average audience score for The Great Zigfield is a 3.3. Uh, so pretty low uh, out of the five, although not the lowest that we've seen so far. On IMDb is a 6.7. Again, not the lowest we've seen yet. Um, and it won a total of three Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Dance Direction. So, John, to answer that wonderful question, is The Great Sigfield worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1936? Well, I spoiled the answer. Yes, I do think <laughs> it's worthy yeah. of the Best Picture winner. Yeah, yeah I, I I actually think so, too. I think this was a movie that, that was worthy of it. It 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 showcases golden age filmmaking golden age hollywood opulence grandiose things sets musical numbers whatever you want there is whatever two million dollars in in 1936 was is today it was well used uh throughout the film and it, it looks good um the acting isn't great but you know what i think it was worthy yeah and i think really diving deep into biopics talking about this film made me think a lot about biopics why i hate a lot of them why i like and really adore some in particular and i think to kind of wrap up the full conversation there's particular biopics that i really love and i think discussing this in the film made me figure out that the biopics that i really love are the films that like tarantino said are about specific moments they're about what really is important is to uh, digest and kind of figure out the essence and determine who this person was and, and why they mattered at least to the people around them or maybe to the whole world so films that really dive deep and are creative with a biopic and kind of try to to either show their life in a, in a magical inspiring way or to kind of break down a specific moment to define uh, the person in the biopic is really what makes me adore biopics and yeah, this was a fun journey into like a specific genre, and yeah, yeah. I, I I definitely I, I definitely see that, um, and I agree with how you feel about it, and, and how Mr. Tarantino feels <laughs> about biopics. Um, it this this is a trend uh, that we have seen where Best Picture winners tell a story that takes place over decades. We had Cimarron, we had Cavalcade, and now we have The Great Zigfield, which takes place over a lot. Uh, years and years and years and, and much to be desired but these films don't dive deep enough and that in essence is like the issue with these films is that they are not snapshot moments or snapshot moments that go deep they are just very big picture looking at the forest type of thing um so i think that's where we have to end the great zigfield uh john any last thoughts uh about this listeners anything going on in your life and in the world so thanks again for everyone listening. We appreciate it. I hope you guys look forward to more episodes and you'll join us in the 10th episode of Worthy, which is the life of Emil Zola from 1937. Yeah. I, again, thank you for listening. Thank, keep on following, share, 
share our, our episode, share Instagram, Twitter pages, Facebook pages. Uh, we want to keep this growing and thank you for everyone who's been here since day one. Uh, you all really mean a lot to us. So I'm Ben and I'm John and, and this, this is worthy. worthy. I've got to have more steps. I need more steps. I've got to get higher. Higher. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.